I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. of six queens this week we are going to be getting our passport stamped at um, passport security and taking a trip abroad with Anne Boleyn um, we're having a chat about her at the court of Margaret of Austria and at the court of Queen Claude of France which is quite exciting because we never really get to explore them in, a, in our queens in an international context and you know the last couple of weeks we've been talking about what happens when one of our queens comes to england and that kind of international context but now we're talking about exporting one of our queens <laughs> and uh these years these years abroad really did shape her like so much of what we perceive as characteristically anne boleyn comes from her time spent at especially the court in france so it's super important to have this discussion when we're talking about her origins it's not really something I've ever, I, I knew about Anne's time abroad, but it'd always be one of those things you'd mentioned in passing in relation to her marrying Henry as this worldly woman, then at her, when she was being tried um, at court of her being more of a wanton woman for being, you know, yes. loose morals and learning the ways of the world at the French court. Yeah, she has this enduring legacy of being a lot more worldly in every sense of the word because of her time in France, uh, France being one of like, you know, the most cultured premier courts of Europe. So I think it's important that we actually take a look at what the reality of it was like. And it's not to say that she wasn't exposed to like all the art and the music and the culture and the sex, but it was a lot deeper than that. And it probably had a lot of different implications that we don't necessarily consider all of the time. So Anne's first uh, kind of exploits into life overseas and abroad um, um, happened in 1513. Now, the reason I'm bringing up the date is not just because I love a date, which I do, um, is because there's often a debate surrounding Anne's date of birth. So this is a really key kind of indicator of how old, how old she was likely to have been, because um, you know, there's sort of three different dates that are postured. Um, ranging from, was it 1501, 1502, and 1507. If we were to take the later date of that, you know, when she was first going abroad, it's highly likely she would have been about six years old, which, you know, I think even with people who were family structures weren't as they are today, <laughs> you know, you're not sending a six-year-old over abroad, uh, abroad. So, you know. No, I, nobody wants to have to babysit a six-year-old in their court. No. With jet, like with the equivalent of jet lag and sea traveling overseas, like nobody needs that. So it's highly likely then that when we're talking about Anne at this period, she's going to be about 12, 13 years old. The age where aristocratic noble uh, children would have been starting to be sent off to different courts, different households to get an education. I think the most remarkable thing about Anne is we, when you look at the Berlin family and kind of their lesser role and kind of lesser nobility status at court at this time is that she was then be able to be placed in the house of Mar uh, the court of Margaret of Austria, which is pretty significant, I think. Yeah, Margaret of Austria is one of those people that I've been throwing her name around for years, but until doing research for this episode, I didn't know 
a lot really about her. Like I knew the bare bones, but I didn't know a ton of information about her. So it was really cool. Yeah, it was really cool to really kind of learn her as a figure. She was ruling as the regent of the Netherlands in for on behalf of her nephew, the newly appointed King Charles V, who also was, you know, sort of de facto king of the Netherlands. And but he was young. So she was kind of ruling on his behalf as a regent. Uh, but she came from, you know, really good European stock. She was the daughter of Maximilian, the Holy Roman Emperor, who you know, was one of Henry VIII's personal heroes. He was seen as like a very influential royal figure in Europe. She was raised in this very worldly cultured court, and she really brought that into her court in the Netherlands as well. She was uh, really uh, interested in the arts. She was a big patroness of the arts. She had a huge library that all of the ambassadors said was gorgeous. So it, she's not she's not just this, you know, royal lady who's sitting around knitting all day. Like she's actually ruling and she is interacting with all these different kinds of people. And that's the court that Anne goes into the first time she leaves home. That says so much about who Anne becomes later is that that's whose court she was in for the because she was only with margaret of austria for a year but it's almost like she's literally memorized everything she taught her and then made a carbon copy of it in her own household later down the line when she became a queen yeah and Anne was leaving home in her you know early formative years so this was like her big experience it's um i mean i know the ages are a little bit off but it's kind of like when you're 18 and you're first going off to college it's that experience shapes you as an adult. So it's kind of the same thing for Anne as she's suddenly in this world and she's learning all she can from it. And from all accounts, you know, from Margaret of Austria's own accounts, she was already a very like charming, precocious girl. So she fit right in. And Margaret of Austria kind of made a pet of her. Like she saw the potential in this girl and wanted to kind of mold her into what she thought would be like, you know, the perfect European noble woman absolutely and there's actually a really lovely letter that um margaret wrote um to thomas boleyn to anne's father um after she was um placed in um her court and it just kind of gives you an idea of how much she i don't i don't want to say took anne under her wing but she clearly was i i think it's i'd say she seemed very fond of her but i'll let you make up your mind in just a second so you write I'm confident of being able to deal with her in a way that will give you satisfaction so that when you'll return, uh, the two of us will need no intermediary than she. I find her so bright and pleasant for her young age that I'm a, uh, I'm more beholden to you for sending her to me than you are to me. I just think it's so lovely. Yeah, this is clearly a woman who has great affection for this girl. And maybe she accepted Anne into her court just as kind of a favor to Thomas Boleyn. Uh, because remember, Thomas Boleyn was a diplomat, so he's traveling to all these courts. He got in with Margaret, and this was kind of supposed to be a favor to him of, sure, I'll take in your daughter and make her into this like perfect worldly noblewoman. But then actually, Margaret of Austria liked Anne. It, it didn't. It wasn't just a favor anymore. It was actually a, how can I help this girl? How can I invest in her future? But um, there are some sources that um, make a note of saying that. Margaret singled Thomas out almost and treated him as the sort of key ambassador and the key um, kind of person in the negotiations that he was there for, um, which 
there's a separate story altogether why he was actually there. But basically, Henry and France, like England and France, has fallen out again, and they're trying to raise some troops and some money for it. I think we could do a whole episode on that. So as I say, this is a story for a different day. But she did, like you said, she took such a shining to him. It speaks volumes to the relationship that they had because um, when Anne actually went to Margaret's court, um, Thomas didn't go with her. He never went back to see her. Anne automatically, you know, she was in Margaret's household, but she wasn't necessarily one of the women who was doing like the um, the domestic duties. She was there just to kind of um, be a companion um, or, you know, a pet really to Margaret. And this is reflected in the fact that actually while Anne was there, she was tutored. Um, so she spent a lot of time in the schoolroom as most girls her age did. But Margaret was a, you know, a big proponent of the humanist school of thinking. So Anne was learning what we would think of as the humanities, um, the same, same root word there. She was learning how to, you know, read and analyze literature. She was learning languages, especially French, which is like the big courtly language in Europe. She's learning to read and write poetry, to play music and appreciate music, dancing, and then, you know, domestic arts as well. But she's getting a very well-rounded education for women at the time. And that's all thanks to Margaret. Like she would have had probably a similar education had she stayed in England, because that's it's the typical noble woman's education but imagine how much it's enhanced by going away and then being taken under the wing of one of the most powerful women in europe that's you know quite an education where the humanist education is concerned i think it's definitely at this point where answer so the early, we're talking early 1500s at this point right it's a lot more prevalent in europe um especially around the netherlands you know germany um sort of where you'll then later find reformists <laughs> who would have thought but um we'll get we'll get to that <laughs> but then also um we're gonna have to have the feminist discussion there is a recent more recent school of thought that um, analyzes Anne's time in both courts but you know sort of the flowering of it in the court of margaret of austria that I mean, in the in the 21st century and in the late 20th century, we've come to see Anne as, or at least we want to see Anne as this very feminist role model for young women. Like so many people respond to Anne because they see in her a very modern woman. But for years, historians really kind of rallied against that because feminism is such a modern concept that we cannot rightly apply it to 16th century ways of thinking. It's just, Definitely. it's an, and it's anachronistic and it, it just makes me feel very unsettled in a way I cannot describe, but fellow history people will understand. It's interesting though, because Margaret of Austria, if we were to take her thinking and apply a modern label to it, would probably be considered a feminist thinker in that she believed in the power and the capability of women. Her, she herself was ruling a, a, a country, uh, I mean, on behalf of, you know, her nephew and because of her royal connections, but still her father entrusted this to her and she did well by all accounts. Everyone really liked her and she was very effective. And that position of power, I think, really convinced her that she was just as capable as anyone to do this. And that's reflected in her 
um, her education as well. You know, the, the humanist thinkers started to go along this line as well. Um, she was reading the works of the influential writer Christine de Pizan, who a lot of people now think is like one of the first feminist writers. Again, we can't call it feminism, but we can appreciate the fact that there are women here surrounding Anne who clearly believe in the the power of women and the intellect of women, which even if Anne didn't subscribe to it as much as we would like her to, it's still there and it's still probably influencing her thinking. I think it'd be silly to think it didn't impact her at all. It's this kind of feminism, if we're going to call it that, I think is purely like intellectual. It's not as much changing gender roles and social norms as it is proving that women have very rounded minds. Yeah. So if you are going to think of it like that, if you would like to believe that Anne was influenced by feminist thinking, I think you have to kind of remind yourself that it's in the concept of like learning and being a well-rounded adult, not having your education scaled back because you are a woman, which is, is really great. And it's, it's, progress in, in quotation marks. However, I just caution people to not make too much of it. Yeah. Um, and I think when you start to look at it through that education lens, you then need to look at the types of education. So like you were saying, you know, we've got the humanist ways of uh, being taught, you know, Anne was learning French and she actually even had her own French tutor, but she was also, um, like you were saying, Kate, very well read in terms of poetry, music, you know, also dancing, I think, and also how to be a witty conversationalist and how to deport yourself in terms of a conversation. So Margaret of Austria herself actually had her own tutor, Anne of France, um, and in something that she wrote called Lessons to My Daughter, um, Anne of France actually said, um, left instructions for her own daughter, Suzanne, uh, to be careful not to be dull, sad or pensive, and uh, do not be one of those um, who out of pride or disdain don't talk to people. Which firstly, I think is fantastic. And secondly, you can kind of see that very much reflected in the way that uh, Margaret of Austria supports herself and then later Anne Boleyn. And I do think it's fun to think about, you know, the 11, 12, 13 year old Anne, so a tween. <laughs> going to this court and trying to impress this really powerful, really worldly, well-educated woman and succeeding. Like that's such an empowering thing. And then to have it be lauded, like it's not considered like a bad thing that you're putting yourself out there and that you're doing this to better yourself. It's actually like, okay, this is good. Like this is what a woman should be. I think we can't ignore how that sets the stage for her future personality developing over her teenage years. It's like Margaret of Austria kind of gives her the ammunition to become a very interesting person, herself being an interesting person, you know, and a very empowered woman. So if we're going to be talking about feminism that way, sure.
So as we said, Anne left England in 1513, and she was at the court of Margaret of Austria in the Low Countries. But at the end of 1514, her father wrote her a letter and said that he had arranged for her to join a new royal household. This was because Henry VIII's sister, Mary, uh, was marrying the King of France at the time, Louis XII. And she needed English women to be in her household. So Thomas was thinking, you know, I have two perfect candidates, my own daughters and my own daughter, Anne, who actually is learning how to speak French and speaks French really well. And this was a great idea. So both Mary and Anne entered into the household of this new future queen of France. Anne was actually recalled directly, though, from Margaret of Austria's court. And it seems like there was actually some reluctance on her part to leave because she enjoyed being there so much and you know as we've talked about she and margaret of austria formed this very unique and special relationship so Anne seemed very content there and was probably a little unwilling to go but actually in the end relented because she was a dutiful daughter and there's a letter that she wrote to thomas boleyn in you know her new improved french Sir, I find by your letter that you wish me to appear at court in a manner becoming a respectable female, and likewise that the queen will condescend to enter into conversation with me. At this I rejoice, as I do think that conversing with so sensible and eloquent a princess will make even more desirous of continuing to speak and write good French. So it's like, you know, thanks for the new job, Dad. I can't wait to improve my French. <laughs> my thought on that is suck up <laughs> yeah she's learning she's learning the game you know she is a Boleyn she sees that this is an advantageous move she's gonna get get to go to a new place and she's gonna get to meet new people and continue this education so even if there was any personal reluctance to leave this place that had become familiar to her this was still a shiny new opportunity to go learn new things and see the world and and serve a queen so Anne made her way to France, and she was there for the wedding of Mary Tudor to the King of France and served in her immediate household. And she was also reunited with her older sister, Mary, which even if they didn't know each other too well because of these long absences, uh, must have been nice to see a familiar face. For a little bit of historical context, the French court was just beginning to go through its Renaissance period. It was a center of culture and art the french language was considered one of the like more refined languages in europe as it still is so the fact that you were spending your formative years in the court of france automatically makes you a more interesting person like we've talked a little bit about catherine of aragon being exposed to all these different cultures and having a bit more exposure to the world and art than maybe somebody like jane seymour growing up in rural england did but anne at the French court was at the heart of European culture at the time. And it's all, it's about to explode because, you know, I, I would say sadly, but I don't, I don't know if it was sad for Mary Tudor. Uh, Louis XII dies in 1515, less than a year after they're married. So now Mary Tudor is the Dowager Queen of France and she's kind of just twiddling her thumbs there. And though Anne and Mary Boleyn continue to be her maids of honor, it actually ends when Mary Tudor very secretly marries Charles Brandon, who is the Duke of Suffolk and her brother's best friend, and is no longer the Dowager Queen of France. 
So instead of going back and burying their heads in the sand with Mary Tudor, Anne and Mary actually end up staying in France. And it just is indicative of, you don't have to have an English queen there to give these English girls the excuse to stay because that's where they want to be. That's, if they're gonna get an education, that's where it's gonna happen. And with the death of Louis XII comes the rise of Francois I and his wife, Queen Claude. But Francois is really the French version of Henry VIII, but I, I would almost even say a little bit larger than life than Henry VIII, but don't tell him I said that. Um, <laughs> he's just, he has this reputation in his own lifetime and then in, in historiography of being very interested in bettering France and making France as like glittery as we think of it historically today. There were there were artists around, there was the rise of music, there was in education, there was the rise of the humanism that we've been talking about. So the French Renaissance really explodes at the time that Anne is at court, which is like the perfect time to be there. And the thing I think is interesting that, um, you know, it's two different historical spheres colliding is that during the early reign of Francois, again, when Anne Boleyn is there, the artist in residence, like the court painter, if you will, is Leonardo da Vinci. So there's a really strong possibility that Anne Boleyn at least saw Leonardo da Vinci. I like the idea of her and him having at least one conversation. We can't say for sure that it happened, but we can't say for sure that it didn't happen. I always, it's, it's strange, isn't it? Because you always just think of people having these little pockets and they exist in these little pockets and never the two shall meet. So the fact that, you know, you've got Anne at the French court potentially rubbing shoulders with Leonardo da Vinci, it just blows my mind. But it just goes to show you the depth of culture that Anne is being exposed to here. And she was lucky because already with the education from Margaret of Austria, she made an impact for how well she spoke French and how cultured and intelligent and witty she was. So she was invited to stay in the court. Uh, Mary Tudor, now kind of slightly disgraced, went back to England with her new husband. And Mary and Anne got to stay because they were offered places in the household of Queen Claude, the wife of Francois. So Anne and Mary were part of this little club of women who moved around with the queen and had exposure to the court. That's not to say, though, that there wasn't a bit of a cultural divide because Queen Claude was really well known for being very devout and she had a disability. She had scolio really bad scoliosis, which uh, she was in pain constantly. So she didn't move around a ton. She was also pregnant all the time. So the physical toll, you know, of all of these pregnancies and her disability, she was just, the girl didn't like to move around, which I don't blame her for. So she, her, inner circle, she held her women to a very high standard of morality. You had to be very interested in devotionals. You had to be able to kind of sit quietly and maybe have intellectual discussions rather than like dance or play music. So Anne had to navigate this very wide divide between the queen holding her to these high moral standards and then everything else going on in the French court, because Francois, on the opposite side of his wife, 
was well known for having a lot of mistresses and being very promiscuous and there was lots of innuendo happening and courtly love so Anne was traversing both sides she was seeing everything going on in the French court and learning from it while still being held to this very high moral standard inside her immediate household Anne's time in France I think is I think we often tend to overlook her time spent with Claude the reading and the kind of contemplating and things like that it, I think it's often been the case that when Anne's time at court is spoken about it's very much that you know as we were saying earlier that she learned to be a what like you know a loose lady and a, a French lady and was taught in the quote French style so I think that's kind of been the enduring image of her but I think it's nice though that we're able to offer both sides of Anne you know she was very bright she was very well read so it's it's nice to be able to balance the two and that's not to say that she didn't learn from let's call it the Francois side of court because she learned how to play the game and I mean she was already learning to do it but she learned how to like like you said have witty conversations and flirt and play the game of courtly love but also learn what happened because of it because I think quite honestly the biggest education she probably got while in France is that her sister became the mistress of the king and suddenly you carry this association with you and while it's not as big of a deal as maybe some more later prudish writers made it to be, <laughs> you still have that notoriety attached to you of, you, you know, you come from a family of women who clearly want to have a good time. So therefore, by extension, you do too. And Anne clearly learned from that about how to play the game and how to balance the perception of her between the very like pious, modest household of the queen, whose employee she wanted to stay in, but also this very like lively, fun court that's happening in tandem. It's so telling of the 16th century, I think, you know, one person missteps, therefore everybody suffers. Um, like you also said, you know, it's learning how to play the game correctly. And I think that was probably the biggest lesson she ever learned, you know, putting on the mask, as it were. Definitely. It, it's so much of who she is, not just as a, a, a queen, but as a politician. It's interesting, though, because all of this that we've been talking about is it's all kind of circumstantial evidence based on like what we know was happening at the French court and then later the perceptions of her as a human. So it's like, how can we see what was going on affecting her later? But in terms of like her day to day life and her reactions to things and her interests in things, we don't really know. Because while there was a lot happening in the French court, we can't say how Anne reacted to it or what she thought of all this stuff going on. But it is interesting to speculate. And one of the things that I think people have speculated the most about is, like we were talking about back in the Low Countries, um, Anne had exposure to what some people now retroactively consider feminist thinking. Uh, there was a woman at court named Marguerite de Navarre, and she was the sister of Francois. And she is well known now for being a writer. Uh, she, much like Catherine Parr later, she wrote these like kind of devotional texts that were semi-autobiographical, um, like talking about her own spiritual journey. And they were quite a, a bit 
heretical for the time. Um, she was she was interested in this kind of brand of like Christian mysticism, which advocated for this more like personal relationship with God as opposed to the inter uh, going through priests to talk to God. So her writings were very controversial for the time, but because she was the king's sister and the king didn't really care, she was fine. And yet she carried this reputation of a woman of great thought and different thought, you know, um, unique thought. And Anne certainly must have been exposed to it, whether or not she knew Marguerite very well, or even served her in some capacity, we don't know. But later she was a fan. She owned a copy of one of Marguerite's more famous texts. And actually, um, in our New Year's special last year, we talked about how Elizabeth translated a work and gave it to Catherine Parr. It was the same text. It was uh, the mirror of the sinful soul. So, you know, a little a little more circle happening with all these like reformed, you know, thinkers That's at their interesting. works. Yeah. So this is a woman who is really well known as a writer and an intellectual. And again, clearly believes that women are just as intellectually capable as men. So I guess, you know, we might be able to call it feminism if you want to go there. But it's just one more woman who Anne now has exposure to and who is very self-confident and who is very intelligent and not afraid to flaunt her intelligence. It's so interesting, this episode, I think, because there's just so many things that we've looked at and we're like, oh, God, that's Anne Boleyn. Oh, God, like she does that or she does this. And I think having someone, you know, as notable as the king's sister then being able to say i'm going to talk about this even if i'm not meant to and i'm going to make people uncomfortable by talking about this i think we all case can whether or not we can attribute it directly to you know any kind of relationship with margaret of navarre is a different story entirely but there's clearly a connection there she might have gone once to you know marguerite's chambers and heard her speak about something and that must might have stayed with her or sparked some interest and in the same way that she might have picked up a copy of something in Margaret of Austria's library and thought this speaks to me so it's just interesting to guess what things in her life were the most formative and as you say this image of Anne that we have even if you don't agree with particulars of it is of this very strong capable woman who and now we can kind of see how that woman took shape, even if it's a lot of speculation. It's telling too that the majority of what we can infer about Anne from her time in France comes from the reactions of people who see her when she comes back to England from France. Uh, she clearly made an impact, so we can kind of see what must have contributed to that impact, whether it's actual things she did or just the perception of what goes on at the court of France from the English perspective. So it's not definitely known when Anne left the court in France and made her way back to England. Her sister Mary went before she did, for sure. So she stayed for another year or so after her sister, but she still spent all of her formative years there. If you estimate that maybe she was about 13 or so when she left the court of Margaret of Austria, then she would have been about 20 when she left the court of Queen Claude and she came back to England. So her teenage years and her the years that shaped her as an adult were spent at the French court and 
French was her first language there then you know she spoke French all day so when she came back to England she was almost unrecognizable to her fellow Englishmen in that way she was very refined very cultured and it's probable that she came back because tension there were tensions between England and France uh, Francois and Henry had a very love-hate relationship it went very hot and cold so a lot of people who were in England like maybe studying were recalled back to England just because let's you know let's get you out of there before anything heats up and Anne probably came back in that wave as well but also there were marriage negotiations happening so uh, Anne was supposed to be married into an earldom in Ireland and we needed to get her back so she could be seen at court before the marriage and so you know the people interested can agree on the marriage so she made her debut in 1522 whether she was you know in England before that we don't know but she came to the English court in 1522 and we know that because she participated in a pageant that's now infamous called the Chateau Vert pageant and I mean she had a, a role in this it was a very choreographed role being in a pageant but a lot of people noticed her because she stood out as being different there was something different and interesting about her uh, a lot of people wrote later that she spoke English with kind of like a French accent because she had been speaking French for so long. So if you think like Hilary Mantel's and like, you know, deliberately mispronouncing things, it's kind of like that. Um, but also she was wearing these really beautiful clothes. She had a sense of style that was different than everyone else's. A lot of times the, uh, the rounded hoods that you see in a lot of Tudor portraits, which are known as French hoods, a lot of people attribute to Anne making popular in England because she came to the court in all of her French fashions. She was exposed to all sorts of different and quote better culture than at the English court. So you can imagine her dancing in this pageant with all of these other ladies. She must have really stood out in a good way. I, I kind of think she was almost seen as exotic for most of her life. You know, she was the the English girl in the court of in the Netherlands, and there was the English girl in the court of a uh, 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 French court, and then she came back to England, but like you said, having spent most of her time abroad, so didn't necessarily quite fit in the same way that everybody else had that had been brought up in the English court. And I think she flaunted it to some extent because you're you know you're having to sell yourself when you're at court, and this was her trump card. It's interesting, too, though, to consider how not just the ways in which her time in France positively affected Anne and Anne's um, the perception of Anne, because uh, obviously all of a sudden she was very interesting and alluring, so men were very interested in her. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, France did have the reputation of being a very immoral court. Um, it, it had the reputation, like, you know, the, the king having an official mistress, like an appointed person that was his mistress, was not as risque as it would have been in some of the other courts. Yeah. There was a sense of, I don't want to necessarily call it sexual freedom, but it was a lot less taboo than it was maybe in some other places. So then, when Anne comes back, a lot of people, men, assume that... <laughs> that Anne also was educated that way. And that comes back to bite her in the ass later, because when you hear about that kind of stuff is when actually she's being put on trial in 1536. Henry alleges that he was very surprised upon their 
wedding night or whenever they consummated their relationship, that Anne was a lot more knowledgeable than he would have expected <laughs> a maiden to be. And whether... <laughs> Whether or not that's actually true, he attributes it to having spent time in France. So it was clearly a very like well-held belief that if you spent time in France, you were receiving an education a little bit more than like humanism. One was more worldly than Erasmus had intended. Yes. I mean, they literally call it the French fashion. Like, yeah. At first, that's a good thing that's in her favour um, until Henry's decided he's had enough of her. And then it's like, oh, wait, hang on a second. What's... Let me put two and two together and get negative lemon. And yeah, begin... it was it was really sexy until I could use it against you. Yeah. And even though so much of it is speculation, I mean, Anne's personality really is speculation. And it kind of differs depending on who you talk to. But I think we can all agree that these times of Anne's life, her time in the court of Margaret of Austria, and then later serving Queen Claude in France, shaped her. I mean, we've been saying that, we've said that a thousand times already, but I don't think we can understate it. Because now, from now on, going forward, and how we're going to talk about Anne and learn more about her, we can all think back to yeah, she learned She learned from the best how to do all of that. She learned how to play the game of court. She became intelligent and worldly. She was exposed to all different kinds of culture. And that made her who she was. And whether or not the perception is good or bad, you know, whether it's a, she's different because she's alluring and intelligent or because I think she can do weird things. <laughs> that's, that is what her reputation is and what it still is 500 years later so this was a really important episode for us to do in that yes we're learning more about her the more we dig into the things that she could have been exposed to but it just makes her make so much more sense if the theme of this series is origins then Anne's origins are so much more firmly rooted in Europe than they are in Kent you know this is clearly where she became who she was and though we've been talking about Anne of Cleves and Catherine of Aragon as the, quote, foreign queens, you know, the queens who grew up elsewhere and then had to learn England, Anne kind of fits into that category as well, because she was so much shaped by her experience, these, these two experiences in the courts. I mean, she spent almost 10 years of her life away from England. So, yeah, I think she very easily fits into the kind of foreign column in terms of that's what makes her different from the others. for listening to this episode of Six Queens. On the next episode, Kate and I will discuss Henry's bachelor years following the uh, the death of Jane Seymour. In the meantime, you can follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review on your favourite podcast app. Long live the queens!